super excited to be chatting with Sunit, someone I consider a friend, a mentor, someone I look up to. Thank you for coming on and lending your time. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. And it's again, we talked about it a little bit before, but I gotta tell you, I'm just, I love the stuff you're putting out there and all the knowledge advice you're sharing. Uh, you're the perfect person for it. I mean, the way you work and the way you share, not from the first time I met you. Like, I'm happy to be a part of this and uh, to support you. So thanks for making time for me too. Dude, hell yeah, man. I appreciate the kind words. So I'm gonna start with the important stuff, right? You're a dad, you're a family man first. Yeah. You are someone I consider extremely mission-driven with what you're up to at Boulder and what you've been working on over at Dream Village, which is super cool. Mm-hmm. And for our audience, you've also got a really long history of working in marketing growth, which includes uh, GM Crazy Egg, Chief Growth Officer at Help Scout, CMO at Live Intent, VP Marketing at Chartbeat. And I think you've even done some management consulting before that, although you and I have not talked about that. Yep. What am I missing? Wow, man. I think you got a good run in the past probably seven or eight years, not a little bit longer. If you were to go before that, you know, I started my career at big company. So I worked at Prudential. I worked at Dun & Bradstreet. And I got some great experiences there. Met one of the best bosses I ever had. And I learned a lot about sort of big company life. But the biggest thing I learned is that I didn't want to be a part of a big company. I was there through, I was there through September 11th. I was there through a recession. And I saw that at the end of the day, like, nobody matters. Like you, you, it's very easy for people to just be cut. And I never wanted to be a part of a situation where there was only so much I could do to influence my own growth or effectiveness. Right. So left that always mission driven, as you mentioned, I went to business school. So I went to Duke and then I did a bunch of like social impact work. So I worked, I did microfinance research in India, worked for global giving, actually helped launch the first charitable giving card. Global Giving, Kiva, Donuts, Shoes, like companies like that. Then I did program management at FEMA and ran alternative housing. So post-Katrina, like helping people find housing. Ran that totally like, you know, with all that work, the things that, the stuff that turned me off was uh, not satisfied with the pace of work. Working for the federal government was really dissatisfying. We built this great plan, help people get housing. They just never used the proposal. It was pretty sad. And when you say not satisfied with the pace, is this because it's government and it's moving too slow? <laughs> Absolutely moving too slow. And then the output was for optics. It yeah. was for like actually serve, serving, right? And also didn't feel like I had credibility. Didn't feel like I knew what it meant to run a business. So then I moved into the private sector. So before this like startup world, uh, yeah. I did, I joined a private equity backed company. We turned around integrated five companies and sold it. Uh, so probably my most like lucrative uh, endeavor, but I was like, kind of the hatchet man, like fix it person that brought a bunch of people together, integrated all the companies. I think I laid off or participated in laying off probably about a hundred people. And were you doing just like more like management consulting type stuff? Is that sort of that realm? Yeah. So it was, uh, it was, yeah, I mean, it was everything, right? It was, it was, it was strategic planning. So we were part of the management team that was installed to help turn around, integrate and turn around this company. So I did branding, I did digital, and then I took over a couple of business units to streamline them, turn them around. And we actually ended up selling both to streamline the company and then sold the company. Uh, so did that. And basically I was like, look, I'm done with this. Like this stuff doesn't work for me. I want to be on the growth side. So I realized I didn't want to be big company. I realized I wanted to be part of like something more meritocratic. I wanted to keep the social stuff deeply personal so I could do it my own on, on the side. And then uh, I realized that in the private sector, I wanted to be part of the energy and the growth side, which is what pushed me into startups. And that's what got mm-hmm. me to that sort of lineup that you, that you outlined. 
that sort of bridges the gap a bit. Super interesting, right? So you go from government, super slow paced, management consulting, which is probably 60 to 90 hour weeks, probably depending on the week. And then you go to startup world, which has got its own frenzy, hustle pace and all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think different models of working and different values. And I think that's probably the thing I've learned the most is they all like, there's a different framework and there's a different value system in each one of those sectors. And then also in each of the individual companies, but like, you know, the thoughtfulness and the planning and the strategizing that sometimes gets laughed at, right? Uh, from the management consulting side, bringing that to startups was fascinating mm. because it really helped you take a systems look at these companies that were kind of like making up things as they were going along. And sometimes it was beautiful. And sometimes it was like crazy friction. But yeah, different environments, different values. I, I mean, I love where I'm at now. And so what's interesting is, so I consider you like a growth expert, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm actually curious, like, do you yourself identify as someone who's in a growth or are you someone who's taken this management consulting skill set and just applied it to different problems in different companies? So I think I'm growth minded. So people can laugh at me for that, for that, for that yes, term. I, I definitely think I have a growth mindset. So to me, growth is focusing on growing things and taking them to scale which requires some amount of fixing, some amount of infrastructure, some amount of experimentation, and some amount of methodology and process to take things to scale. So, you know, growth can be the verb or growth can be the qualifier to the discipline. And so you can look at it a bunch of different ways. So, you know, I probably looked at myself as a growth person for a little while, probably because it was a hot topic and you know, it was easy to identify as growth. My first, what you would qualify as like a true digital growth experience happened in 2001, and I'm happy to tell that story. But I think I see myself differently at different stages. And now I think I definitely, as I look back on my career, throw me at a problem. Like I love solving big, hairy, like painful problems, turnaround problems. I like doing it with a growth mindset. I hate the cut to grow mentality. Uh, which is that private equity experience that I had. I'm a fan of the streamline, uh, stabilize, and then invest on top of it, experiment and invest on top of it, which is why growth with me sometimes takes a little bit longer, but also tends to be longer term and more sustainable. Hmm. So I think I've shifted to, yeah, I think, you know, I used to think of myself as a growth person. Now I think of myself as more of a, like, you know, there's definitely a strong operations component to it. I'm a problem solver. And as I get old, like, look, man, I'm old, I'm old as sin now, like, the thing that really motivates me is like getting people into places where they can be successful. Mm. So that Patrick and Price intelligently profit well, uh, consistently told me, he's like, you need to be like a chief people officer. He's like, that's more and more your bag, which has been, which has been fascinating. So I think that's, I did think of myself as growth, but I think more and more, I see myself more as like a motivator, coach or inspirer. And like, Someone who gets people in the right places to, to make them be successful. And I love that. Like, I love that more cool. than anything. And I could see you being the chief people officer. That feels like it fits your ethos and your temperament and like your skill set and your DNA. I feel like that's built into you. Yeah, thanks. For better or for worse. And so going back, so the purpose of the podcast is to kind of dissect some of the people who, I don't want to say I've made it in growth because I feel like nobody's made it and everybody's on their own journey, but just to dissect the journey a little bit. Because everyone has this weird journey and it's sort of this gray area between marketing and all these other 
uh, you know, sort of disciplines. And so for years, it sounds like this part of your journey really started like in the early 2000s. Like, do you remember what that was like? Like what were, what were some of the things that you were doing at some of these startups at that time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll say, I think the precursor to everything I do, I think I've never, I was never an academic, never really that good academically. I always believed in practical learning. And as a result of practical learning and like learning by doing, you have to be okay with screwing up and making mistakes. It's really easy to, I think, be a genius and recite sort of a book that you've read and quote a framework, but that never worked for me. So I will say, you know, in terms of the precursor and like, what are the things that motivated me or or got me into growth? I think it's this idea of, I love experimentation. I love evidence. Like let the data prove. That's it. I have no bias. I don't want to be right. I want to do the right thing. That's like, Mm. that is the way I live my life. And then also just zero fear of failure. Like none, right? I look like an idiot so many times in my life, so many times on a daily basis, but it doesn't matter because it's in pursuit of like this bigger thing. And so that, that I learned my freshman year of college. And how did you learn that your freshman year of college? I feel like what a random, amazing thing to pick up at such sure. an early age. So right, I think my first semester freshman year, I had like a three, six, three, seven uh, GPA. And I don't think I learned anything. <laughs> and I remember the essay and I don't talk about this that much, but I remember this essay. And I'm actually going to look it up after this. Um, I can't remember last time I talked about this, but there's an essay called Scholarship Boy by a guy named Richard Rodriguez. And it was in this like uh, English 102 or 101 book. And it basically talks about this guy who makes his entire career super successful. I think he was like Ivy League, brilliant, you know, well-researched. I can't remember his profession, but he was like just really brilliant academically, right? And certified brilliant. But he felt like a sham the entire time because none of his thoughts were his own. None of his concepts were his own. He just became really good at reciting back what he had read somewhere else. And so he called himself Scholarship Boy. And that's what I felt like my freshman year. First of freshman year. So I stopped. I started taking a bunch of random classes. My GPA graduating Rutgers was like a 2.5 to the point where I applied to Duke for my MBA. The dean at Rutgers was like, there's no way you're going to get into Duke. You should think of something else. Best thing I could do is get into Duke at that point. But it was fascinating. to do this. I just did a bunch of experiments. So I did like four or five internships in college, just learning by doing. And so anyway, I think my career has been like a growth experiment. That's how I would say it. But that's like in my DNA. And I think that's yeah. really important to like my career path in general is it's an experiment when I feel like the evidence has played out and I've achieved what I wanted to achieve. I'm like ready to move on. Or when I failed, I've been shown the door a good number of times. and like, that's okay. Like it happens. Right? The 2001 experience. So I was working at Prudential and Prudential started an e-business development group because they needed to like webify their operations. And so I joined Prudential in the e-business development group and basically just took over like a bunch of projects. Like I built our, helped build our online portal, like helped build, you know, first electronic statement delivery was one of the first companies to do that. Personalization, one of the first companies to do that. Build like, and did you have experience doing this stuff or was it just like, hey, there's some new projects and somebody had to do it and somehow you got it? We were making this up. Nobody had done it. Yeah. This stuff didn't this stuff didn't exist. And my boss came to me, Jim Burke, still one of the best bosses I've ever had. He came to me and he was like, We need to find a way. Prudential has ten thousand financial advisors. 
We need to find a way when somebody clicks on an ad on the DoubleClick network, we need to track them all the way through their submission. It needs to go into a system and we need to route that lead, that form, to a financial advisor somewhere in the country. And we need to close the loop and follow up so we can attribute their account opening to that. There's no Salesforce. There's no Marketo. We built the system like ourselves, mm-hmm. the small startup called Kamoon. And like I remember in a month, we basically built a ad, click to form, submit, round robin rotation. And we were able to attribute and we would do offers with like, you know, get six months of the Wall Street Journal free, Money Magazine, like all this sort of stuff. But like early digital ad, we had to do ad tracking manually in the URL, like all this stuff I built. And I just fell in love. Like, yeah. because it was, I think the other side of growth and the conversation you had, was it with Connor from Jobber? Yeah. Right? And Connor talked about like, growth is about bringing together, you need design, engineering, but you need the ability to holistically test and execute yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think I realized in 2001 was I love the fact that I had a designer on my team. I had engineers on my team. I had the sales team that I was working with. And it was awesome. And then the thing that blew my mind was like the power of targeting. Mm. And so we ran, I think it could be arguably ever, uh, we ran the first targeted campaign to the LGBTQ community for financial advisors. And when they submitted, clicked on an ad and submitted their form, they were routed to an LGBTQ financial advisor. Wow. Uh, so we were connecting. So we did this in 2001. Right? Pretty amazing. Pretty fascinating. Yeah. And yeah. That to me was like the power of targeting and focus and campaigns and like being really smart, affinity and like authentic connections, right? Because I'm sure there were people that were doing some testing, some of this marketing, especially in financial services, because the average uh, income was higher in some of these households than otherwise. But for us, we were like, we're only doing this if we can route you to somebody who's going to make you feel like this wasn't just a sales pitch. And it was awesome. Like it was awesome. Yeah. Got a ton of blowback, ton of blowback. The design team didn't know what the hell they were doing. I still remember the first like banner copy we got. You have optimizing ad copy. It was financial services for gays and lesbians. That was like what? And we're like this. Oh my God. Like you're about to offend. <laughs> you're about to offend an entire population of people. I can't believe you did this. But coaching the design team through that was really like, was awesome. Like, and they yeah. changed and it was great. So yeah. that was like my first growth uh, idea. And it was about this idea that was targeting, closing the loop, right? Being able to attribute, learn, refine the hypothesis, implement, test, learn, and just keep doing it. And that just got me hooked because it felt like, yeah, it just felt like how I lived my life anyway, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super interesting. You also said something earlier that was making me think, you talked about just like making mistakes, being a core part of your DNA and your professional career. How have you been able to pick companies where that's been okay? I feel like that's something that I hear a lot about when I chat with more junior growth folks. They'll say, hey, I want to run experiments, but you know, like my boss isn't really into that kind of stuff. How have you navigated that? Uh, I haven't always gotten it right. Um, I think I would say like I trust, you know, I'm pretty blind and blissfully ignorant and I have not always gotten it right. You know, I would say my greatest tension is I've worked for some really beautiful product companies, right? Chartbeat and Help Scout are like, I mean, they're brilliant. 
you know, Tony Hale, Nick Francis are obsessed with every pixel and every part of the experience. And it's why them and their companies have been so successful. But growth in those environments is really hard. It's really hard. And I think I overestimated my abilities in some of those cases. And I think both of them would say they overestimated their abilities to adapt and change maybe as quickly as we need to, but also to compromise. And maybe they didn't need to compromise, right? Like maybe growth was not the right thing for them. Like I was at Help Scout when product-led growth came out mm-hmm. and you could see like Nick's shoulders soften and relax when he like got to that. Like he's like, yeah, this is the way, this is the way I want to grow this thing, right? And yeah, we built the sales team. We did all these other things, but he's like, yeah, this feels right. This feels right. So I haven't always gotten it right, but I've also been okay. I mean, if you're going to be okay being wrong, like you've got to be okay being wrong. And so <laughs> you've got to take the swing. You've got to do what you think is right. Like if you're going to, yeah. if you want to be able to go to bed at night, you've got to be able to do what you think is right. And some of the bets we made at those companies work and transform those companies in I think, mm. very positive ways. But, you know, sometimes the, the friction was a, little, was a little bit too much. So I haven't always gotten it right. And I think the best thing you can do is like really get to know the people you're working with before and just like make the, look at the experiments they're running now. The more senior you get, and you know this now, like the more senior you get in your role, it's like a marriage. And what do they tell you about marriage? You're marrying the person they are, not the person you think they can be. <laughs> and I think I have married some CEOs and some CEOs have married me and we've made that, we've made that mistake, you know, mm-hmm. like maybe I wasn't the growth person they thought I could be right. And vice versa, like the adaptability wasn't necessarily there. So I think you have to like, and the very practical way to understand that is, okay, what's my budget? What's my budget? Right. And you've heard me you know, talk at profit. Well, and you know, I bring this framework up everywhere doesn't matter what problem you have to solve, getting your, you know, turning around a business, growing a company, getting your kids ready for bed. Like how much time do you have to solve this problem? How much money do you have to invest in solving this problem? And how do you want to be remembered? How do you want the Mm. process of solving this problem to be remembered? Mm. If you identify those three things, you have the constraints you need to determine whether or not like what it's going to take. Is this possible, right? And once you do that, then you can have a discussion, right? So you're joining a company and they're saying, hey, we want you to double. We need to double in the next year so we can raise our Series A. Awesome. What's my budget? And budget is like, how much money do I have to spend? How much are you investing in my team? What's my budget? Awesome. What's my time frame? Is it three months? Is it 12 months? I have a different strategy for each. Great. Awesome. And what are your values? If someone's like, we want you to double, you have no budget and you have to maintain these pristine values. There's no experimentation. You'd be like, yo, it's not going to work. Right. But if they come to you with those constraints and you go back to them and say, okay, here's how I can do this. What you're going to learn is the most by their response. Their constraints are like to guide your proposal. Their response is to guide your decision. Right. Because if they come back to you and they're like, nope, not going to work, then you know, like, they're not ready for this. But if they're adaptable to what you present, they already have that mindset. Like, you've already won yeah. them over. And so that's how I would tactically approach that problem uh, more and more. That's what I've started to do. So. Yeah, it's really interesting. 
I feel like a lot of the people that I know who have uh, taken growth or marketing leadership jobs at startups or, mm-hmm. you know, near startups, but slightly smaller or maybe more towards the M part of the SMB spectrum, mm-hmm. uh, don't do enough interviewing of the company and of the leadership mm-hmm. team and just sort of hope for the best. Yeah. You've worked in tech for long enough. You've had a couple misses and you sort of learn that trial by fire, which I think is just a really good takeaway for anyone who's listening and thinking about it or seeing a really cool head of growth job where Mm -hmm. you need to remember to slow down. And that this is ultimately the most important part of the entire process is picking the right company and making sure the right leadership is in place so that you're either positioned to be successful or you know what you're getting into. Either way, you shouldn't go blind. No, I think so. Look, I'll tell you. Those three questions have got me through like an extraordinary number of problems and opportunities. Like they're great sales questions to ask too, you know, um, like you're qualifying a, a deal. Like those are great questions to ask people and it really helps them. I don't know. It helps you align a lot. Yeah, man. That's what I got. So earlier you were talking about your approach to navigating your career. Yeah. And so what's cool about chatting with you is that you're further along than me. And mm-hmm. so it's really neat to think about the next steps in my own career, and I'm sure some other folks were listening to this, like, how do you think about your journey? When do you know it's time to move on from a company? And at, at what point do you start thinking about that stuff? Like, how many moves ahead are you typically thinking about? Sure. So I'd say a few things. So probably the best piece of advice I got, uh, I was when I was working at Prudential, when I was in this, like, you know, lucky enough to be in this, you know, rotation program there. And one of the things I did was, I helped Prudential celebrate its 125th anniversary. The company was going public, all this stuff. And because of that, I had access, access to like this amazing woman as a Mary O'Malley, who's you know, life-changing in so many ways. And also, I got to have a few interactions with our CEO, who was like just mind-blowing man. Art Ryan gave me one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten at work. And he said, look, he's like, keep making your mistakes. Like, make your mistakes now. Because there's going to come a point in time where you're going to be expected to know better. <laughs> and then you can't make mistakes anymore. And I was like, wow. And he was like, that means make them here, make them there, make them anywhere. But like, you're allowed to make mistakes right now. You will be forgiven. Yeah. Uh, and nothing you do is big enough that it can't be undone. Right. And you're not expected to know better at this point. This is the CEO that told you this? The CEO Prudential at the time, Art Ryan, like incredible. Pretty powerful. Yeah, I mean, and just humbling, right? I mean, this is the CEO of a Fortune 100 company, right? I mean, it's insane, right? And he, the advice was outstanding and I took it to heart and I made a bunch of mistakes. And one of the big mistakes I made was on that same project. Second piece of advice I got was, you know, my boss, Mary O'Malley, somebody else that stuck with me. She's like, yes, you're allowed to make mistakes. So you decide what kind of person you want to be. She's like, when you're mm. pushing your sharp shopping cart down the aisle and you see something you want, Right. How do you go after it? Do you push your shopping cart over and grab it off the shelf? Or do you leave your shopping cart in the middle of the aisle so nobody else can get through? Leave a disaster for everybody else to clean up and then go after the item you want. And she's like, look, the way you left here, you left your shopping cart in the middle of the aisle. Like, don't do that again. Wow. And so, and both of those happened within six months of each other. And so in terms of how I think about my career, I think, you know, the first thing uh, I think about is, I always keep those endpoints in mind, right? I'm not allowed to make mistakes. It's okay, right? But I want to try and leave a place better than I found it. And I want to try not to leave my shopping cart like anywhere, right? I want to try and take care of the people I leave. So that's how I think about, you know, once the decision is made, how do I arrive at the decision 
The next thing I tell people is you should be super deliberate about two things in your life. The selfish and deliberate. Uh, it's the person you choose to spend your life with and the job you choose. Because if you are happy in those two situations, selfishly happy in those two situations, everything else works out. Everything else works out. So if you make those two decisions selfishly about you, everything else works out. As soon as you don't feel like things are good, so how do you process? How do you navigate that? And the last piece of advice, and I give this to my, everybody that's ever worked for me, is what would your company do if they weren't happy with your performance? They put you on an improvement plan, give you a heads up, and then they'd notify you, put you on a plan, and then they'd fire you. Do the same thing for your company. If you're not happy with where things are going, put your company on a plan. Go talk to your boss, go talk to whoever you need to and say, look, like, I love it here. This is what I got. This is what I need to achieve over the next period of time. Give them the time to do it. Too often people don't share what their desires are Mm -hmm. and don't give the company time to respond. They bask in this like dissatisfaction and contempt and then they leave on like angry terms. By the time they tell their manager, they've already accepted a new job and it's way too good. And they're already checked out. Yeah, right. So like, you know, Tell them what's up, put them on a plan, and be deliberate. If that isn't resolved, leave. Like, leave. Bet on yourself and leave. And what would a company do? They're always looking. Companies are always looking to hire and upgrade and top grade. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with always looking to, at a certain point in your career, always looking to sort of upgrade and and find a better day. As long as you leave without putting your, leaving your shopping cart in the middle of the aisle. Like, who can fault you for getting yours? Like, nobody can. Those are some of the things that I think about. You know, I have definitely had a number of things that I wanted to do. So I've taken new jobs based on a problem I wanted to solve. So like when I was at Prudential and I went to the business group, I wanted to learn digital. I then went to Dun & Bradstreet and took over product. I was like, I need to learn how to do product and manage P&L. Went to the public sector. I was like, I need to know if I can bring these concepts to the public and social sector. I couldn't. I wasn't equipped enough. I needed a crash course in practical business, even after business school. So I did private equity work. Like, holy shit, did I learn a lot? And then I was like, look, I wanna, now I wanna focus on like the fun stuff, like taking things. I love companies that are, you know, less than 350 to 400 people. Um, Mm -hmm. I know that's my sweet spot. It's like 35 to 400, depending on the nature of those 400. If those 400 are in like a call center or an operations role, it probably scales a little bit higher, but nevertheless, that tends to be the range. And I just wanted to continue to focus on that. And then I wanted to raise a bunch of money. So Clive Intent, you know, me, you know, uh, CFO and the CEO or the core team that raised 32 and a half million bucks. Then I wanted to go to a company that wasn't going to raise money. We ended up having to raise money anyway. And then obviously wanted to go to a bootstrap company. And now, you know, at Boulder, you know, the decision was I needed to like take a break from that pace and like ease my conscience and bring the social stuff back into it again. Yeah. And that's what's been that's what's been great about Boulder is we're mission driven. It's people intensive. So it's I mean, we are people are the value we bring to our clients as this mission driven outsourcing company. Unfortunately, growth had to be like front and center because I joined, COVID happened, took a thirty-five percent hit in revenue like the day it happened. And I love saying I love telling everybody now that we've grown past it and we're back on our original trajectory for twenty twenty. But like I didn't expect to come into like this hyper scramble growth mode all over again. But I have, every time I join a company, like the fit hits the sham, like that's just what happens. <laughs> well, that's an awesome story. Like pump that you're back there. And it's really interesting. I feel like I chat with all these folks 
who work in tech for 10 plus years Mm -hmm. and they just get burned out. You know, they get that hustle culture kind of burn going. And I feel like I hear a lot of stories from people who are like, Hey man, I'm just going to sell my city apartment and move up to Vermont or move to Montana and chase it. And so it's cool that you've been able to like live your values, uh, stay in your home, stay in New York, uh, but live your values and apply your skill set in different ways. I think that's really awesome. It's been great, man. And I think that's important. You've got to figure out, you really have to pay attention to your energy, understanding like what motivates you, understand what gives you natural energy versus what's like, you know, what may be required, but at the end of the day, leaves you feeling exhausted. And so for me, it's counterintuitive, but for me, like the happiest moment of my day is I wake up at 6.45, take my, let my wife sleep in a little bit, take the kids to school, get them ready, do it, like get all that stuff out of the way. And it's tough. It is not tiring. Like I got to repeat everything a hundred times. I got to do all this mess in the morning, not tiring. And it's like, it's the best I feel all day. It's like that peak. So, you know, even if you started at eight, that's wonderful. And I have that blocked on my calendar. So there's like untouchable times, 6.30 in the morning to 8.30 in the morning. And you can't touch my calendar. And then... 5.45 at night to 8.15 at night when the kids are going to bed, like, can't touch my calendar. And that's like, those are my blocks. Like, those are my refueling blocks, which is awesome. So I think yeah, that, is awesome. that like time blocking and time boxing, you're about to get into this, right? You're going to know. Like, it's, uh, it's great. It's great. I've been thinking a lot about it just as we get closer to having our baby and just how to yeah. preserve my energy and be the best version of me for all aspects of my life, right? Work is one aspect. Family life obviously is another aspect. And then you've got your own, you know, your own energy and your own passions and all that stuff. And not that they compete for your time, but they all require different time. And uh, if you don't prioritize it, it just doesn't happen. No, it's true. You got to prioritize it. You got to like understand your expectations too, right? Like if, again, if I were telling you, Hey man, you got to double postscript, you know, in the next 24 hours, You'd be like, it's not, like, it's not going to happen. But if it gave you all these constraints on your time, on your budget, you'd be like, here's the best that I can do. What is the best that I can do versus what is the best that can be done? And I think that as a parent, you be, the kid forces you to very quickly just be able to make those trade-offs in your head. Like, this is the best that I can do. This is the best use of my time, hyper-efficient. And I, I hope you're forgiving of yourself. That's probably the hardest thing. Cause like, yeah, you're still just going to do great. Like your definition of great is going to be you know, better than anybody else. Um, but I think that's, that's what it does. It gives you the ability to like very quickly make those trade-offs. Mm-hmm. I got one more question for you and then I'm going to let you go. I appreciate your time. Yeah, no, What's the advice that you'd give someone who's either earlier in their journey, uh, either getting into growth, getting into marketing, getting into project or product management or midway on their journey? How can they learn about this stuff? How can they navigate their careers? How can they stand out? Wow. You know, I think, I mean, there's so much, right? This is the kind of advice that like you love to give sort of one-on-one based on a person's, you know, individual strengths and, and all that stuff. But I think the biggest thing you can do is first, like, enter any conversation with supreme clarity about like, what is your real goal? Human beings can't optimize to multiple variables at the same time. We're not an algorithm, right? Like we optimize to like one variable at a time. If you're early in your career, like the right thing to optimize for 
is experience and advocate. Like that's the thing you want. Work for free. I've taken jobs for free. I've taken demotions. I actually took a demotion to move into the e-business development group. And I like, it's not the salary. It's not the title. It's none of that. Early in your career, do whatever it takes to get the experience and the advocates. Like I did this. She'll tell you I did this and I did it well. That's like the thing you need. The second thing I tell you is like, pay attention. Just like pay attention to what's going on. Be aware, be thoughtful. It's so easy to be lazy right now. It's so easy to spam, to message on LinkedIn and not give, it's so easy to do all that stuff, right? If there's a company you want to work for, if there's a person you want to work for, don't start by reaching out. Start by paying attention. Like, that's not stalking, right? It's like, read what they're writing, comment on it, engage with it. Pay attention to stuff they value, like learn about it, right? And then when you reach out, reach out with a reason, right? Like reach out with something that sparked you and compelled you to reach out. You will stand out. There's this great research report written by a company called Nonfiction Research. Two guys, consider them you know, buddies of mine. They're great. They're excellent, like, you know, forester level research experience, right? Where, where they've come from. And they started this new agency to do research. And they've done a bunch of stuff. They just did, uh, they just like indexed all of Spotify's public playlists. And then like wrote about the sentiments and the stuff that people are really feeling on their playlists. And it's wild. It's wild. I'll send you a link. It's intense. Anyway, they did this research report called The Secret Financial Lives of Americans. And there's like all this data in it, but basically they just hit, hit you with like fact, 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 fact. And it's like, you know, 44% of Americans have cried about not having enough money. 50% of Americans couldn't afford a $400 hospital bill without going bankrupt. It just hits you with all these data points about people who are so worried about their money. And then there's this one data point that like jumped out at me and it's like 64% of Americans who have a financial advisor feel like they have nobody to talk to about their money. And I'm like, wait a second. Two thirds of people are paying somebody to like manage their money and they don't feel like they have somebody to talk to about their money. And what does that tell you? That tells you that like financial advisors are not paying attention to their clients. They're too busy going after like the next big thing. And the point for me is that happens everywhere. That's growth markets. You're so obsessed with acquisition. You don't care about conversion. You don't care about yeah. lifetime value, customer success, usage and adoption. It's coming. But I've been doing this for 20 years. It's just happening. It's just happening. And so the other thing I would tell you is if you want to stand out, literally the thing you can do is just like pay attention and care. That's it. If you do that, you're clear about what you want. You have one variable that you're optimizing for early and you can change that variable as it becomes a new job search, but like optimize for that experience and advocate. And then like, pay, just pay attention, stand out by giving like, you know, bigger shit than anybody else. And that you can control, like you can control your attention. That's probably what I would say to somebody like starting out now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's probably what I'd say. It's good advice. You know, I feel like, it's easier to access people now. So if you're yeah. following someone online and you know there's people that you're learning from and following on LinkedIn or following on Twitter or whatever it is, you can access those people for sure. And they're probably getting hit up a fair amount. 
And a way to break through is, is to be authentic to yourself, obviously, to truly pay attention and invest in them. And then like, be specific. Yeah. Because uh, they're getting a whole bunch of those generic outreaches all the time. And their time is limited. Their time is valuable. And you've got to make it worthwhile to invest to get a little something back. I think it makes a lot of sense, man. Yeah. Have you, uh, quick aside, are you a fan of uh, a fantasy football fan? Yeah. So uh, TMR, he just, today's article, I think today's like fantasy love hate uh, yeah. that, that, he, that Barry wrote is actually about this. Like he goes and he, he lists out like all the emails he received and like why, why he's like, I'm not going to respond to this. Like you're not, my email is public. Like, why are you, come on. Like how many emails do I get? Like pay attention to me or do something. It's a fascinating email. It definitely applies to this discussion. So worthwhile. Do you read his whole articles? They're pretty long. They're long. I'll read the pens. This one was interesting. I skimmed it. I read some of them. So I was like, this sort of hits the spot. And then I jumped quickly because my whole team is injured. So I was like, who are you recommending, bud? But yeah, I, but I love his narrative at the beginning of his stuff. Like, I love the stories he tells. Yeah. It's great. It's fun stuff. That's what we all need right now. A nice little escape, some uh, fantasy football news to take a break from the craziness of the world right now. It is. It is. I appreciate you coming on, sharing your story, dropping some knowledge. Thanks so much, man. It's good catching up. Absolutely, bud. Thanks for having me. And again, wishing you just... Tons of luck over the next couple of weeks and beyond. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Cool.